Take your seats, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome to Craft of Services, the show where we look at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected, but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast as well, and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. You can find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me once again on the show today is writer and movie critic Mark McPherson of MoviesWithMark.com and MovieSpoon.com. His new book, The Horrors of Anime, is a collection of over 30 essays on some of the worst anime ever produced. Mark, welcome back to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, Possibly going to get worse as we talk about this film, but hopefully uh, we'll uh, all survive the experience. Uh, Have you seen any good movies lately? How is uh, 2018 shaping up for films? Um, there's actually been a lot of surprising films that are going to be very high on my list. Like it's like, again, like, you know, the, the earlier the year it's become like, there's a lot more better films. So we're kind of in like the, the summer slog right now, but yeah, but yeah, it's, it's been a pretty damn good year so far. There's a lot of films that I'm going to be watching over and over at this point. stuff like annihilation and, uh, you were never really there and stuff like that. Yeah. I was surprised about, well, I guess I understand the politics of it, but I was surprised that Annihilation um, didn't hit uh, as big as uh, it wanted to. And of course, the distribution was strange because it basically only came out here and then it was uh, Netflix, you know, everywhere else. Um, it was essentially, yeah, it was essentially ruled that uh, that Paramount thought that the long and short is like they thought audiences would be too dumb. So they didn't <laughs> yeah, want <right>. to... <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for that, Paramount. Uh, other than them, uh, studios thinking that audiences are dumb, do you see that happening with uh, future releases that don't necessarily have a rock solid audience? Uh, well, it, it I think it depends. Like it, it's we're in this weird spot now because right now, like the hugest money maker right now is is Disney. Yeah. And that's because Disney, they've made more money in like the last half of the year than they've like ever made. And I think what comes with that is it's mostly um, more like room for like experimentation in there. Okay. Because that's like the that's the reason why like uh, like movies like Black Panther and uh, like Infinity War are doing so well right now after like 10 years of Marvel films is because they're they have like the leeway to to explore. So I think. Yeah. I think that's because that's the thing. Like, I think Disney right now has enough leeway where they can explore like different films, see how stuff works. That's why they can try stuff like uh, uh, stuff like a Wrinkle in Time and like a little spinoffs that they're doing with Star Wars. Some of them might work, some of them might not, but they're trying to go out there and take other chances with it. Um, I think that it's 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 going to be kind of weird, like especially like well, especially because like the biggest film that's probably going to be this year is probably going to be Jurassic World. Mm. Um, and I think it, uh, I, I think you're, you're going to see like what, what lasts and what doesn't. Because I was thinking that, you know, Marvel films have gone up in how much money they're making. Um, and you look at something like Transformers, which has been around for the same amount of time, and that's gone down. Yeah. And I think it's because, yeah, because it's running out of ideas. You know, it's kind of running on just like the, the notoriety of it. So as long as, you know, like, because everyone has these big concerns about these big blockbusters, you know, just like charging out the same stuff or being stupid um as long as they can keep going if they can keep experimenting and taking chances you know i think that's what disney's learning right now and that's kind of what i hope they learn from like the incredibles too because like the incredibles 2 is the hugest performing pixar film yeah. and like i i love that because i absolutely adore like uh, pixar and especially the incredibles and brad bird directing i just hope they take away the right thing from this which is uh 
let you know Brad Bird get on another project and don't just force him into the Incredibles three because he doesn't want to do the Incredibles three. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed like he didn't want to do the Incredibles two for a long time. Oh yeah, he's well. He, he doesn't want to come back to stuff if he doesn't have ideas because they were saying like, oh, we should do like you know like like Ratatouille two and it's like or the Iron <laughs> Giant two. I don't want to do these films. I yeah, want to do right. I want to do new films that explore more. So. Yeah. Uh, speaking of animation, your book, The Horrors of Anime, deals with absurd elements in anime, and God knows there's more than a few. My question is, why does it seem, at least it seems to me, that anime is so weird, and at its best, it's it's so imaginative? I mean, we have sci-fi and cartoons here in the West, and they're usually defined by being imaginative or absurd, but they don't seem to hold a candle to the ideas and images that you find in Japanese anime. Well, I think that's because there's this kind of it's it's kind of like run like the kind of like the, this cult wave pretty high of like, you know, what you can do uh, with animation. I think that's mostly due to the desire to do more um, and experiment, even, even if it seems too weird and even if it fails, because I remember um, I think it was like a Tezuka studio who did like stuff like Astro Boy and stuff like that. He made a film called um, Cleopatra. Mm. which was kind of a it, it was kind of like this weird almost kind of like it had like a sci-fi edge to it of trying to portray the the legend of Cleopatra and it was very it was very dark it was very weirdly humorous there were like pistols he had like uh uh cameos by Astro Boy it was there was tons of <laughs> sex and tons of violence and tons of humor in it okay. and it failed horribly but but it was there because he said, like, I don't just want to do Astro Boy. I don't want to do kid stuff. I want to I want to make funny stuff for adults. I want to want to explore more stuff. And and it came out during a time when, you know, animation was kind of experimental. You know, there was uh, there was stuff like uh, Yellow Submarine and Fritz the Cat coming out at the time. Right. right. Um, and I think that's kind of what's defined anime is is this need to to explore like different types of genres and see what sticks, because sometimes some of it does. Um, and and that's like the thing, like it's kind of like bred this kind of weird crowd that kind of expects the weirdness, that kind of expects stuff to be like absurd and, and exaggerated to extreme degrees that it's it's kind of bred its own little, either like kind of like medium or genre from that. Yeah, there's a lot of movies that we have that are mainstream successes here, um, like you mentioned Transformers before, that mm -hmm. are based on animation. And when you think about it, are essentially like a live action cartoon. So I, I, I love the fact that the Japanese don't treat animation as something for kids necessarily. And yet we don't seem to be able to break through that here in the West. Like if it's, if it's a cartoon, if it's drawn, then it's automatically for kids. Uh, we, we, we kind of do. I mean, we, well, the thing is, I think we do, but I don't, I think it's, I think it's kind of like, cause like this, the thing is like with, with anime in Japan, like most of like the more like adult stuff that, that we talk about from there is it's kind of, it's kind of relegated to that type of crowd for like the niche stuff. Cause like, uh, stuff like was like outlaw star was on at like, like two thirty AM in the morning when it, okay. when it was over in Japan, somewhere around that time. Um, but I think what, uh, I, I think it makes it sick because there's more of like an accepting, uh, group of it, of it like i mean yeah yeah we have huge anime groups here but i think it's become a little bit more collective that you know that they can have like more dedicated shops and stuff like that over in japan because we do have a dedicated base i think we kind of have this like kind of repression to um animation that's not just for children because they're like oh like you know cartoons are just for kids um oh well, except for family guy or oh, except for the simpsons oh well, <laughs> yeah. except for because there's there all these exceptions that keep building up over time right uh and that's how like you know we almost kind of have like this weird and I think that's kind of like the fascination of like anime because like you see something like sausage party come out 
um, which you know, be, being used to like adult animation with stuff like like Fritz the Cat and heavy traffic and stuff like that, the Sausage Party just kind of like yeah, it's just. It's another Seth Rogen movie, you know. It's got a few <laughs> clever ideas. It's it's a it's the same style of writing and all that. So it's it's the same type of deal, except it's an animation. But for everyone else, it's like, man, I've never seen crazy shit like this in animation. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I was trying to explain to my girlfriend last night what Cool World was, and I was like, this is <laughs> this is going to take a while. I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> well, um, at the time, okay. it was described as like a. Um, I, I remember there, it's just like some press event they described like, oh, it's like Roger Rabbit, only better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Roger we all Rabbit know. for oh. adults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Roger Rabbit was for adults. <laughs> it, well, you know, exactly it was. And that's how a lot of the uh, animated, uh, animated shows and movies get by is that like The Incredibles 2 is great and there are so many themes in there that kids are not going to apprehend at all, like taking care of kids, keeping your family together. Oh, it's, it's uh, an entirely an adult story outside of like yeah. having like you know, the the jack jack is like the slapstick element that that's what right. kids but ultimately the story is just about parents trying to deal with the fact that you know that their world is changing and that you know they have weird shifting roles that they got to adjust to right which yeah. is which is why it's probably probably pixar's most like adult film like because like i was trying to think of ones that are more adult that focus on parents before that and the only thing i can think of is the incredibles just because yeah it deals with uh, that part of uh, growing up, even even though there's stuff like, you know, like Up and Finding Nemo, which do focus a little bit more sure. on on passing and stuff like that. But in terms of like, you know, dealing with stuff that feels more, more, I guess, more relatable to like the immediate of kind of like, you know, my kind of like growing demographic, you know, that's that's kind of where it's at. We were both at uh, ConvergenceCon recently, and we were on a panel about Guilty Pleasures. Uh, that is a movie that you really like, but you know it's not thought of as typically good. What's your definition of a Guilty Pleasure film? Well, it, it's kind of tough because I, I, I've heard like a few critics say, like, you know, it, it can't really be a Guilty Pleasure a guilty pleasure because if you find pleasure in it, then it's really not something you should feel guilty about. Okay, okay. Um, but, I'm guess, but I guess through, like, the context of this, I guess it would be, like, you know, a film that you – really like where like either like the majority of your friends or like Rotten Tomatoes, you know, d- doesn't really uh, find the same thing in it that you do. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a good description for the kind of films we talk about in this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time you were on the show, we talked about Ballistic X versus Sever. Would you call that a guilty pleasure? In a weird way. <laughs> I, I think for it, it has, it's, it's, a you know, like every, every, you know, bad film has some appeal of like, you know, like, Hey, don't do this. So it, 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 there's there's something to be learned from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, any other picks off the top of your head for guilty pleasures? Um, I remember I was really alone at the time and liking Domino. Oh, okay, sure. Domino was it, it's such a, and I, I guess you, you really got to be a big Tony Scott fan. Yeah, right. To right. really dig Domino because it is it's batshit insane. It's all over the place, and that's kind of why I liked it, and that's kind of why everyone else hated that film. Uh, before we get into format, I wanted to ask your opinion on something. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the this perceived divide between critics and audiences when it comes to film ratings. Um, mm. Critics and moviegoers, they don't always see eye to eye. And the gap between their opinions seems to be more of a point of contention uh, than it's ever been. Uh, there's releases like you know, Hereditary getting a D-plus uh, in the cinema score, but a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, mm. Last Jedi getting a high rating from critics and a low rating from audience on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. What, what do you think is the source of that divide? Well, it's it, it's weird. I, I think because um, from like the perspective of like the critics, I think most of them come at it from like an angle of having seen so many movies and trying to take away from that. Okay. Um, I, I think 
what like I think like because I think audiences are a little bit more like immediate like emotional because like with a lot of these big tentpole films like that is that's like their film like and and the film it has to be good at that point <laughs> because well because like the, the way I look at it is like I try to imagine like you know like let's say there was like I use like Suicide Squad as a sample like there's a Suicide Squad movie coming out and like someone's like a huge fan of of Harley Quinn. So it's like, oh, this is this is it. This is my film. This is the Harley Quinn movie. Right. So I'm gonna make a big deal that I'm gonna I'm gonna get my, my Harley Quinn cosplay going. I'm gonna reserve tickets. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out for dinner and drinks before it. I'm gonna make a huge night of it. I'm gonna invite all my friends. It's gonna be the best thing ever. And then you get there and and you want it to be you really want it to be good. <laughs> and if it's and if it's not good, if it doesn't meet your requirements it's it's going to be such such a drown that downgrade and it's i guess the test of like your fandom too because uh, because i because most time i think i found like if if fans don't like a film but they really really do want to like like it they'll say it's okay and and mm. i've done this too i've done like i'm a huge green lantern fan and i didn't want to admit that that film was bad but it is <laughs> i said like no no they they got oh right they got they got kilowog right it's like nah, it's bad <laughs> and it's okay it's okay to admit that you sure, know you know yeah. that you're a fan of something and they did a bad movie it's it's happened to all of us yeah i think cinema score uh, really uh, supports your interpretation because i've noticed that it's either feast or famine like many films will get an a or a high B uh, or it's D or F. Like there are very few B minuses or like C's like people walk out of a film going. Oh, especially with horror. Oh, interesting. Horror is, is particularly well, because like we have like this weird kind of like, we we have so much different horror films out there right now that I think sometimes people get like this, this lost idea of like what horror is supposed to be. Um, because like typically I think they, they might think something like, you know, like Annabelle, which is kind of like roller coaster jump scare horror. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got, um, then you've got kind of more like depressing type stuff. Like it comes at night or, or hereditary. Um, and I think like, it's weird to kind of recommend that to people and for them maybe to accept it either. Cause like, you know, horror is is weird for some people like because it's weird because like we, we for a lot of people who grew up out of like you know like the the gore porn era of like the 2000s <laughs> sure they're like like oh I, I don't want to admit that i like horror that's that's like the saw films and the hostile films i i don't want to admit that so when like a really good film like you know like get out or hereditary or it will come along they don't want to admit that it's horror interesting okay so it's just like a uh, like a thriller or something instead yeah, yeah, there, there. I think there's like a, I forgot who made it, but there's some like old joke that you know the difference between a horror and a thriller is that thrillers win awards. <laughs> <laughs> right, sure. Because like, because Silence of the Lambs won some Academy Awards, and like people are like, oh no, no, it's not really horror. It's a thriller. <laughs> Right, right. We wouldn't step to that. No, this is a thriller film. Yeah, of course. Uh, Well, our film today uh, features a gap in appreciation from both critics and audiences, and it also um, has horror elements or perhaps thriller elements to it. Um, And it stands as an odd memorial to the hypothetical directing career of Dan Aykroyd. We're talking today about the movie Nothing But Trouble from 1991. And we'll talk in a moment about the writer, director, and star of the film and what was going on behind the scenes. But first, can you give us a synopsis of Nothing But Trouble? Oh, God. Um, well, <laughs> uh, the best way I can describe it is that um, I, I'm trying to remember, like Chevy Chase plays um, 
uh, is it like a like an investment banker? I think something like that. I think that he's he he's makes a journalist, dis- isn't he? Yeah, he's the, he makes the distinction that he's a financial reporter. Financial and I think reporter. That yeah. Knowing the markets, he can reap the rewards of investment, but he's not an actual banker. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's kind of playing like this kind of you know his typical you know kind of like smarmy type self. <laughs> yes. Um, and he invites a whole bunch of people to go on a a road trip for some new venture. And along the way, they get pulled over by uh, John Candy's character, who says, like, oh, I'm going to have to take you folks in here. And that's when they get taken to the, I guess, like the the, the courthouse of, <laughs> I guess. I'm trying to find the right. best way to describe this. They're basically brought to, like, the, like, like Beetlejuice land <laughs> and they're introduced to Dan Aykroyd who plays this judge who looks like the most disgusting thing you could ever imagine Dan Aykroyd looking like <laughs> is the best way to describe that. <laughs> and uh, somehow the digital underground is involved. Yes. <laughs> the digital underground will show up for no reason at all. <laughs> other than the fact that we need some music. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, I, uh, boy, this movie, um, that's a pretty good uh, synopsis of the plot, I think. And I've heard that it is, um, well, I've heard a couple different things. I've heard that it's based on a, an actual experience of uh, Dan Aykroyd, that he was... Um, pulled over for speeding um, in the rural town, like in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And something like this happened. I mean, not all the fantastical elements. There was no Mr. Bone Stripper, but he was taken to a local justice of the peace, like in the middle of the night for mm-hmm. a, a quick trial, uh, like we see in, in this film here, um, which is weird enough, uh, I suppose. Um, I also think that this is, I think it's clear that this is some kind of send up of the type of um, the uh, the Psycho or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sure. or even even like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, that type of film, people you know getting ganked when they're you know in the middle of nowhere or on vacation, uh, which is a really popular theme. And of course, it's come back now in the form of like you mentioned, Saw or Hostel. I feel like those type of movies are still still hanging on. Yeah, it's, well, it's it's classic you know horror movie type send up, and yeah. Uh, and and yeah, it does go into that territory because. Uh, this kind of came out like, like I mentioned, like Beetlejuice. Like this kind of came out in like the the age of the early '90s, where uh, films had to be a little bit more gross. They had to be a little bit more mean. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't, I don't know if Ren Stimpy played a role in that. They might have, but <laughs> uh, but you saw all these like films like trying to duplicate stuff, like you know, trying to be like over the top with like production values and um, and gross out stuff, you know. Like, like, honestly, like, I try to find more films, but, but honestly, like, Beetlejuice is, like, the biggest thing that comes to mind, because this mansion is, it, it's like a Pee-wee's Playhouse horror fest. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like a huge, the rude, uh, rude Goldberg murder machine, mm-hmm. uh, and you mentioned uh, the production value. Uh, there was plenty on this film. It cost $40 million. Which was huge at the yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> especially for a comedy, yeah. And it only made uh, $8.4 at the box office, so not much of a return on that. It was released on February 15th of 1991, and just to go through the ratings, it's at a dismal 5% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the film doesn't actually have a Metacritic score, and I'll talk in a second about uh, some of the difficulties I had finding uh, reviews of it. Uh, it's, a, it's at a 4.9 on IMDb, and adding in our cinema score here, it was a D-plus uh, on cinema score, so the audience seemed to weigh in saying, not so good either. I've seen this film a couple of times now, um, and every time I come away thinking, what were they thinking? Like, am I, am I supposed to laugh? Am I supposed to be scared? Should I want a hot dog? Should I swear <laughs> off the of hot dogs after this film? Not going on um, roller coasters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I hope you can help me to uh, figure out how to feel today. Why did you want to talk about Nothing But Trouble on the show? 
I think just because I find it like there's so many baffling elements that came together <laughs> to make this happen. Like, you know, like the like, why did why did Tupac Shakur make this the, the <laughs> debut for him to come out? Um, why did Dan Aykroyd decide to direct this film and then appear in it with so much caked on makeup yes. uh, to make everything look grotesque? And in that's several even, different like, the, roles as well. Yeah, like that's like his role as the judge is not the most disgusting role in the film. Somehow. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I said, like I was trying to figure out how this came together. And like you mentioned, yeah, there was the time he was pulled over. Um, I don't know how viable this was, but someone else also mentioned that apparently he just got the idea of like, you know, how funny it would be to see John Candy in drag. And right. that was enough for him to write <laughs> in there. And poor John Candy. I mean, who's just doing sort of thankless work uh, in this film. Um and is uh, in one part barely in it, you know, as uh, uh, the son or the grandson of the judge. And then he has to just be in drag for the rest of the film. He doesn't talk at all. It's like he deserved better. I was surprised how much like I guess I was almost surprised like how much they didn't rope him into the film because there's there's one particular role where uh, Dan Aykroyd plays one part of a duo that is extremely disgusting. And I thought, oh, that's for sure going to be John Candy under all that crap. <laughs> yeah, right. Because I thought, you know, the film has gone this low. It might as well be him in there as well. <laughs> yeah, and it's not. Um, and we'll uh, reveal who it is uh, in a second. But I think that this is definitely an example of Aykroyd. Well, he's clearly having fun. But he's also, I've always seen him as somebody who wanted to really push boundaries. Like you hear stories about how, um, so he wrote this film. Uh, his brother, Peter Aykroyd, also has a story credit. And of course, Peter Aykroyd appears in the film as Mike the Doorman for a small role. Um you hear about like when Aykroyd wrote the Blues Brothers, like he wrote, you know, he they told him to write the script. He brought it to the producers and it was like 600 pages long. And there were like just side care, like the Henry Gibson Nazi character had like a whole subplot and like mm-hmm. a whole uh, focus. And they told him like, it can't be this long. Like this isn't a film. And he said, well, you know, you, you just cut it down to a film and drop whatever you want. Um, I've heard about when he was on uh, Gross Point Blank, um, he played the character Grocer, who's a killer that works with... Um, with um what's his name just for men guy oh um <laughs> oh god as i get funny. older yeah i'm way past my uh 10-year reunion um john cusack uh oh, his, uh yeah uh that works with john cusack uh and he's just kind of a normal guy he's kind of dorky uh and he wants to portray john cusack but he had all these ideas for like the character would be like this like gay slavic dude he'd be like a arnold schwarzenegger type with like bleached hair and he kept bringing all these ideas and they're like that's not we don't that's okay we don't need all that that's fine like it seems like he wants to really push the boundaries you know of of comedy and i respect mm. that but now that he is the writer star and director like he's got it's his film all the way and yeah. we you know we get this <laughs> and it's funny because since he had so many uh prominent roles when it failed i think i remember chevy chase saying something about this like when it failed there was nobody else to like blame or to take the take the responsibility and it really led to a downturn in his career at least in the short term yeah and, and you could tell like uh fr- from what i've heard like apparently it was one of those I think I might have written this in my my review too, but I think like at one point he was kind of admitting like, yeah, you know, it like I kind of knew it was bad. I mean, he mocked the show later on like on his own show, okay. and uh, and I, I think he kind of like knew it was kind of bad, but I think he just went along with it, you know, because like Ed, Dan was his friend and he just he wanted to you know help him out with comedy. But I think yeah. I wrote my review like you know friends don't let friends put penises on their nose. So <laughs> <laughs> I've got that on a pillow somewhere. I think. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, it's just too bad. If you look at his IMDb page, you know, he's got a couple solid films. You know, he wrote Blues Brothers, Ghostbusters, uh, Mm -hmm. classics, you know, Spies Like Us. Good, not great, but good. Uh, Dragnet, same thing. And then it hits nothing but trouble. And there aren't many credits after that until Blues Brothers 2000. No. Uh, So this is kind of, you know, there was the end of his directing career and kind of the start of the decline of his writing career as well. Yeah, it's. A, I, I think it's like his. He he's one of those guys who's like who's too brilliant with his comedy that like his his brain kind of like. He's on another level. Yeah, yeah, like kind of kind of like not that he's like kind of completely off the edge, but like his brain is kind of fried where he's got like way too many ideas that are coming off the screen. <laughs> yeah, sure, right. And that's that's totally nothing but trouble. This is where like nobody decided to to chop down the script or tell him like maybe it shouldn't put penis on your nose for something <laughs> right because <laughs> there's you no know, reason for that scene <laughs> everybody needs that guy to tell you nah, no penis on the nose uh yeah um i think both ivan reitman and john landis turned down the opportunity to direct the film so it might have been and i don't know if those were official offers or just them being in you know that circle uh they were like no nah, i don't think so so maybe it was a role that he was sort of forced into um but yeah it's still he's left holding the bag yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think it's mostly just because like the friend that you know, like the like they're good buds and everything. So I imagine right. you know, he went to wanted to help him out with his his film. He just uh, he just couldn't say anything, and apparently he was so frustrated that he called up like his other friends between takes just to like voice frustrations because he's like <laughs> it's like you know like kind of like screaming into the pillow like, off screen. It's like excuse me a minute, Dan, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Uh, Chevy Chase, of course, plays Chris Thorne in the film. And I got like some, some Ty Webb vibes from this guy. Like if this was, uh, if Ty Webb, uh, gave up his golf membership and then sort of, uh, you know, lived on a few more years, it's that, that same kind of role that Chevy has where I don't think he always has to have, um, like a financial advantage, but he's definitely has an advantage over the characters. He's sort of like sitting in an elevated position, kind of looking down. Yeah, and and I think it's yeah he's he's just kind of like admiring just how bizarre this all is because he can he can be really good in roles but it just kind of feels like he's just kind of like autopilot here. Yeah, uh, yeah, like his typical roles. Uh, Demi Moore is in the movie as Diane Lightson, uh, the romantic interest and somebody who is just literally uh, along for the ride. And this mm-hmm. is strange. Um, this is probably the last movie that Demi Moore had to do <laughs> before uh, she was able to get her pick of roles. This is literally coming off of Ghost, mm-hmm. uh, which was, of course, huge for her. And then after this, she would go into... I mean, the 90s were, you know, her decade for the most part, you know, a few good men, indecent proposal. I think around the time of striptease, she became the highest paid female star in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, So it didn't really slow her down, this film. But in this movie, I can't tell if she is good or if she's barely keeping up. Like, I know, like you said, like Chevy Chase hated the script. And I think he figured Mm -hmm. once he got on set, you know, they could make it funnier through improvisation. But Demi doesn't have the improv gifts of Chevy Chase or Dan Aykroyd. And there's parts in the film where she gets close to like a almost like 30s screwball feel uh, in Mm -hmm. in what she does. And there's other times where she's just kind of there. And I don't think that she really, you know, there's a lot of things going on that aren't great in the movie. I don't think she's the worst part of the movie, but I'd probably put the blame on Ackroyd uh, as the director, like not trying to sort of get more or more specific things out of her. Well, I think what he wanted out of her, which I, I almost kind of admire for her, is like she's she's kind of more mostly to represent like the, the audience 
Yeah, yeah. Because like I, I, I almost kind of like her because she, she's kind of that reminder that like, no, this isn't like typical. You should be freaked the hell out by all of this that's going on. Because <laughs> right. she's the only one who's really being terrified by all this. Like yeah. Chevy's just kind of like cracking jokes along the way, and there's there's another couple who are also kind of <laughs> making jokes along the way. They're not yeah. terrified by the fact that they could be launched into a roller coaster that's going to chop off all their skin. So <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and like the way that they go about it, like in her character as Diane, like I think that if they had, uh, like you said, like made her more of a surrogate and have more like honest reactions, maybe that yeah. would have worked. Well, or she should have done. Other... She should have done more like a more commentary on the situation by saying, "Yeah, like, yeah, why don't you all find this messed up?" <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Or going completely the other. I mean, the movie literally ends with like a Looney Tunes bit. So if she went like oh, totally the other way, because there's a scene like where. Um, uh, Alvin is, you know, eating his dogs and she's kind of like, like, you know, she's got this like huge sort of reaction mm. uh, that doesn't necessarily match everything else that's going on. But she is hardly the worst part of the film at all. I, I also want to mention that Valerie Bromfield is in this, uh, who is a longtime comedic actress. Uh, people might remember her. I hope they do for mm. as the TV repair woman from Mr. Mom. She's the, uh, you fed a baby chili lady. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, Taylor Negrin is in it. Uh, who is a longtime uh, comedian and comedic actor. Um, he's really great. Well, he's, he's okay in this. <laughs> Nobody comes out uh, really great in this. But, they're they're uh, trying, but there's, there's yeah, not right. much. <laughs> and they're saddled, uh, him and uh, Bertilla DeMoss uh, play the Brazilianaires, and they're saddled with this weird characterization. I'm, I'm tempted to call it problematic, but it's just so strange that I don't think it's like offensive, just, just confusing. Like, why did they decide to do this specific thing? Yeah, like, cause you get the feeling like, okay, they're they're gonna be like fodder here, because they, right, because they're building them up to be like kind of like annoying. They're 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 you know they're luggage. They don't really need to be on this journey, right. uh, and and it's just kind of like a wasted opportunity. They their their bones get stripped, and then we raise the stakes at that point. Except not because they literally just like walk out of the film. They leave I the guess they, film. <laughs> they ride a train out of the film. Yeah. <laughs> And they take John Candy with them. It was like, hey, hey, John, do you hate this too? You want you want to leave the film? It's oh, only yeah. halfway through. Yeah, let's sure. go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to mention really quick. You said uh, that um, the guy in the mask, or when Dan Aykroyd is playing um, one of the two junkyard twins, yeah, uh, Bobo and Little Devil, uh, or Little Devil, excuse me. Um, Dan Aykroyd plays Bobo, and John Devikis plays Little Devil. And if you don't recognize that name, there's no real reason that you should. Uh, he, I, I'm assuming, was a friend of Dan Aykroyd's. He did appear as um, in a bit part in Spies Like Us. And then his only other IMDb credit was um, for Ghostbusters. He was credited as a hardware consultant. And I had to look it up, and I still don't have a definitive answer, but I, I think that means that he helped uh, Dan Aykroyd sort of conceptualize the equipment. Like, yeah. I've seen some sketches of proton packs and uh, goggles and uh, PKE meters and things like that. Mm -hmm. In other words, the only person who would bother putting on that makeup. Right, yeah. <laughs> it was like the right. last favor he called in. <laughs> right, you get that late night call. Hey, hey buddy, uh, I need your help on something. Yeah. <laughs> Could you wear a um, diaper? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what size diaper do you wear? 
Uh, there's some other weird cameos in the film. Um, Daniel Baldwin appears uh, as uh, he's I was going to say he's the fat Baldwin, but I guess it's all academic now. Yeah. Uh, but he appears in a group of uh, ne'er-do-wells. And they're the characters that we do see uh, what will happen or what can happen if you run afoul of the Valkenvania Justice Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course, we mentioned that uh, the digital underground was in the film. And I don't know about you, I tried to find out why they're in this film. I think that they are a bright spot. Um, they did release their their song, um, same song, uh, as a single uh, from the film, right after Humpty Dance, actually. But I don't know if there was a favor or if they were a musical act on SNL. or I, I, I don't understand the connection. I don't know why they're in this film. I think they were trying to find a film to break out in. And and I think they're, they're, they're not only trying to find a film to break out in, but a film where they could, you know, play their music in, too. You know, sure. they, they probably wanted something, you know kind of i'm guessing like you know their 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 dream would have been something kind of you know like purple rain you know they get get in there but <laughs> yeah right fire in the sky but uh, well I, i'm guessing they just want to you know however they want to get their name out there they wanted to you know get on the big screen any way they could and uh, dan Ackert, i guess was open to it because he was willing to get in on the act and play the piano with them <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, he's a musical guy. <laughs> did you think that that so that scene, um, strange as it is, like a lot of the film, uh, I did enjoy. Did you think that him, uh, Alvin, uh, sort of joining in uh, on the number with them was like too far? Or did you think that that was like fun and cool? Um I thought I think it's more kind of like bizarre than anything because like on, on the one <laughs> no, hand, it's definitely yeah, bizarre. Yes, it, it is a good scene because yeah, it, it is digital underground. You, you do get to hear them; they do sound awesome. Uh, but it's just it, it's it's surreal to watch the, to think that like really they're in this film with the with, yeah. with uh, creepy Dan Aykroyd makeup guy <laughs> playing the and piano. A, he, yeah, and he's 106 years old. He hates everything, but yet he can still roll with the uh, digital underground. And all bankers need to die, apparently. <laughs> right, yeah. Go suck a bug, right, yeah. And uh, and there's a young uh, Tupac is in this. I guess technically mm. this is Tupac's first uh, film appearance. Yeah, because he has like a big uh, introduction. They say like, 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 hey, how's it going? Like, what do you do? Oh, we play music. Hit it, boys. And then they go for it. Right. That's about the extent of his role. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think uh, this would be a good uh, part for or time for us to talk about uh, some of the highlights of the film. Uh, which do exist, uh, mm. I believe. Um, I, th- I love the fact that this is a, a reunion of sorts uh, for people from Second City, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, uh, John Candy, Valerie Broomfeld, and of course, Brian Doyle Murray shows up in this, and they were all uh, members of Second City at one time or another. Mm-hmm. Um, like we said, uh, Digital Underground is in it, uh, and they do play the wedding song, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Um, other than that, uh, I don't know. Um, the only thing that I got from this, and I didn't watch this in the theater, I don't think, but I did see it on VHS at some point in the 90s. But I remember that Mr. Bone Stripper uh, is something that I took away from this. Uh, mm. That's something that my friends and I uh, definitely talked about a lot, having a Mr. Bone Stripper. Well, I think uh, definitely probably the the one part of this film, I think they that was given the most attention was the whole production of uh, of Alvin's House of Horrors. I mean, yeah, the the bone stripper is a, is a pretty cool design. It's 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 very intricate. It's very it gets it gets the job done without actually showing, you know, like the bone stripping and all that in its own cartoonish <laughs> yeah. way. Um, yeah. You have all these weird asides, like kind of like it's this kind of attic of all the evidence and uh, his like pit of rubber toys i think <laughs> right yeah yeah like th- there's great little 
creepiness elements to it like that that I kind of liked if the film could find some kind of weird tone. I think probably what would what really pushed me the wrong way with the film is like I don't really understand too much of the the world of like was it Vulcanvania? Vulcanvania, that, yeah, yeah. Like, like I kind of get okay. It's a corrupt community. It's got this weird judge, but I don't know. I kind of feel like there's there's more of a film there to explore other than just this one guy's crazy house. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've read somewhere. Um, was it Empire Magazine? Somebody said that uh, this is. Um, one of the they had a top ten list of the films mm-hmm. of the '90s that deserved a sequel, and at first I was like, "Whoa, no!" But then I was like, "Oh, maybe, maybe there's a world here uh, that we could get into more." Um, I liked the idea that Vulcanvania was. I think it was inspired by uh, the real life Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is a mining town that has been. Uh, there's a coal fire i think that's still going there it's been going for like 60 years um the 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 mines caught on fire and so smoke will just like leak out of the ground uh in a similar way to what we see in valkenvania yeah which which kind of plays a role in the plot a little so it kind of explores it it's a little bit there's bits and pieces of this world that's explained through there yeah, there are bits and pieces all over this film that almost become part of the plot uh, and are justified. Like, for instance, all the little uh, Rude Goldbergs and uh, little contraptions that he has, they make a point of saying that Alvin has an engineering degree. So you sort of get the idea of him as, you know, like a frustrated engineer and he's sort of taking out his frustrations with bankers and who knows uh, who else uh, mm-hmm. by making these little things like the hot dog train and things like that. Yeah, like, well, um, I like I mentioned, like the the production design i think is 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 high it's so high that they i don't even know how they got away with this with the mpaa but that scene where he takes off his face yes <laughs> i'm kind of like how the hell did they get that in there for pg-13 right right that is probably the most disgusting thing in the film by far and that that includes like the the penis nose which right which, which that, means that that, it, that was a choice then because if it's not a real nose then he had somebody make or he himself made a nose that resembles a penis. Yeah. Cause I get the feeling that that shot was supposed to be like, he had this vision where he was going to eat the hot dog and like the, the ketchup or the mustard was going to like perfectly place itself to make it look <laughs> like a penis, but it didn't. And so we had to go back and have like, like, Hey guys, just flat out, make it look like a penis. Cause okay. it's not going <laughs> to, because you see, yeah, you see that in the film, like it, it is phallic looking, but in certain like reverse angles and like inserts, it's clearly they have done something to the prosthetic or used another one to make it explicitly. Yeah, first know, I thought it was member. like a, a like a dream sequence because even the characters are like <laughs> yeah. mystified that like wait why did it turn <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, that is uh, a low light, I think, of the film for me. Uh, I just don't... It's a penis too far. I don't understand why that exists. Well, there's um, already so else. much other grotesque stuff. Oh, yeah. It like gets lost in a wash of, of stuff. Well, the, the characters um, do, too. They they get just lost in all these crazy production values where you're, you're, you kind of almost just want to enjoy, like, all the crazy makeup and sets more than the, the plot. The hot dog scene itself is... It's something that... If I'm eating when I'm watching the film, I have to stop eating until oh God, that yeah. scene is over. It's, uh, it's unsettling for sure. Um, although I would like a condiment train. I think that'd be kind of cool. Honestly, I was kind of, I don't know why, but I found myself more disgusted by the um, by the, the, the bone stripper more than anything. Okay, okay. And I think it's I, honestly because like the stuff that creeps me out more is just kind of like the... 
when you let like the imagination run wild, you know, it's kind of like, you know, in, in like lim- minimal horror films where you kind of let your, your imagination be the creepiest thing. Sure. That's kind of happened with me with, with nothing but trouble. Cause every time I see like the, the bone stripper sequence, like it's just like quick shots and then it's like comical shots of skeletons being thrown out. But there's right. just something about that, that turns my stomach because you got to imagine them stripping off the bones and everything. So right. Right. And then they shoot out and hit the little target. So yeah. it's grosser than it, than even the movie thinks it is. <laughs> yeah. They definitely uh, went extra on the sound design for a lot of these scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, the something that I've always found unsettling in films is um, infantilized adults. And when you give them troll doll haircuts and put the, and smear them in grease and put them in giant diapers, it's to another level. For oh me. God, um, they look like rejected garbage pail kids. I exactly, yeah, they really do, and they don't. They're they're just a, a gross feature. Like they don't really have any impact on the plot. It's not like you know. I, I think it's kind of. I like the part where um, Demi's character sort of uh, bonds with them and sort of like <laughs> starts like a, yeah. a connection with them. And you think that that's going to pay off in some way. And it doesn't, they just strap her to the thing that's going to cut her up uh, the watermelon chopper. Well, yeah. At, at that point in the film, it's just, it's, it's spinning its wheels with finding stuff to do. It's like, 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 Oh, arranged marriage. Oh, what's, what's this? So it's like, Oh, uh, right. Got to yeah. best the, the, the children trolls that want to kill me. Oh, oh, oh. so yeah, it, it's just finding stuff to do at that point. That is just, like you said, like it, it gets lost in production values and just, showcases off like you know how crazy can john candy's makeup look when he's wearing a dress and how <laughs> and how and how and how weird would it look that they have this junkyard where they're going to toss demi moore into a pit of fire you know right and that scene where uh she's like getting ready for the wedding or she's picking out her stuff it's it's you know it's the scene where the girl like shows the guy something and he's like nah and then she shows something else and he's like yeah that just that whole thing is it has a very um there's got to be a situation where Bugs Bunny has been um, forced into like a you know, shotgun wedding or something like that. That's kind of what it reminded me of, like a, it's a very Looney Tunesy, cartoony kind of thing. Oh yeah, that's and that's very evident by like even like we mentioned, like the last shot just goes full Looney Tunes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't don't go full Looney Tunes. <laughs> you never go. You never go full Looney Tunes. Uh, the movie has a like you mentioned a weird pacing. Like you think when they escape. Uh, after he gets uh, Demi out of the um, chopper thing and he blows up the barrel, like that's going to be it. And then they, they go back in again. They go back mm-hmm. uh, literally to the mansion and we get the reveal that uh, he's got all all the cops are his friends. Like this entire county apparently is sort of on his side. And then they blow the entire house up. They get away there. And then there's another ending where they're in Miami or whatever it is. And he sees him on TV. It's like. Why did they feel the need to like keep going back to the well to try to get something out of this? And, that, and that's that's again like they, they keep like I said like they keep spinning with different plots like the ending they keep spinning with different twists just to keep it yeah, more right. more crazier. <laughs> yeah, uh, I almost feel like we, we've talking about animation a lot on this show, but I almost feel like this would be I've heard comparisons of this to something like the Munsters. Um, and I can kind of see that, but I almost feel like this would be served as what if there was a show that sort of followed uh, the Valkenheiser family and then we see hapless people, you know, get, you know, taken to court or just uh, run across them. There's not quite enough story to fill up 90 minutes or however long the film is. Um, the fact that they have to keep going back to that. And then at the end, uh, what the hell, we'll just have him uh, run through a wall like Bugs Bunny. 
Yeah, they just they're just spinning its wheels because I'm trying to think like <laughs> spinning what... its wheels is a good yeah that... yeah well, the roller coaster. But I, I'm trying to think like what else they could do with that with like a series because like I just think of like the other stuff that it's it's kind of playing off stuff like you know like Adam's family and stuff like right because and they kind of had they have the reveal of what's really going on here, which is. Um, Chevy and, and Demi find the um, room where they've got all the driver's licenses or whatever, like the um, the newspaper clippings. Like he's been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they find Jimmy Hoffa or something like that. Yep. Got to have that joke. <laughs> yeah. That's remember. Remember that? Remember Jimmy Hoffa, everybody? <laughs> that aged well. Uh, let's check in on the state of the robot Holocaust. Uh, I have a theory that if a film opens with excessive voiceover with overly long title cards, or if it opens over water, you know, that, that helicopter shot uh, where you're coming in over water and it pans up to a city line. Uh, that means that we're going to see a bad film here. And actually on a previous show, uh, I added that anytime the credits in a film, uh, exist within the film or if they're rendered as if they're in the world of the film. Uh, that's something that's new uh, or has been added with the advent of C- uh, CGI graphics. If I see any of those elements, we're in trouble. And sure enough, as soon as Ray Charles's cover of The Good Life begins, uh, we're flying in over the East River and the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I might add uh, that uh, any film that also ends with somebody breaking through the wall <laughs> in a Looney Tunes fashion... <laughs> Might be a bad film. Uh, do you have any indicators that tip you off when you sit down? A film starts, uh, something happens, and you think, "Uh-oh, this this might not be a very good movie." I think um, the one thing that makes me dread immediately is is how long they hold on a shot, like oh, or, interesting, or how long they hold on a gag. Like like we mentioned, like like the, the infamous like hot dog hot dog penis nose scene. There's an uncomfortably long holding on that shot and every and you get every single person's reaction at the table to him eating the hot dog. Uh, right. And I think it lasts something like about like 30 seconds to a minute of them just watching him eat this hot dog in the most disgusting manner possible. Like, I, I don't know how Dan Aykroyd found a way to make eating hot dogs the most foul thing on earth. But yes. he must have worked tirelessly on that take to make it look disgusting because bravo, man, he, he, he did it. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of sound design goes into that too. All the squishing and uh, and the oozing sounds. Yeah, the, the, I think yeah, the, the timing of the joke, especially since they they initially screened this when it was still called Vulcanvania, and it tested really poorly. So I'm wondering how much of that Ackroyd fought to keep. Well, that you there. think there was more? Well, I'm debating like whether or not that that was how the scene was, and he fought to keep it like that, or if it was like oh, okay. two minutes of people just watching me to hot dog. Yeah. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, it does open over water. Um, so I don't think that we are in trouble just yet. The state of the robot holocaust for this film. Uh, let's say we're all waiting for that celebrated new upgrade for our phones, which little do we know is how artificial intelligence emerges and starts Judgment Day. So we're right on the brink of the apocalypse, but not there just yet. Why do you think critics rejected this, except for all the reasons that we've already said? Uh, I, I think, yeah, just cause I think it was, it was baffling, uh, with like it's, it's competition at the time with what it, what it was trying to be and where it went. And I think mostly just because of the, the talent involved too, because, you know, cause Dan Aykroyd's done some amazing stuff. He's written some amazing stuff. He's acted in some amazing stuff and to sure. see his directorial debut just be just fall flat on its face with all these like gags that are like have so much like production values caked onto them that barely any jokes can get through without you just just kind of laughing at their assembly more than you know how they actually function 
yeah. you, you just can't get into it. And I think that's why, like, Roger Ebert refused to review the film. Like, he <laughs> yes. saw it, but he just he, he couldn't bring himself to write about it. Yeah. And he, he hated it so much that apparently, and I, I think he's told the story. I don't know how true it is because he told the story, but apparently... Uh, at a at a at the screening floor, there's barely anyone there, and he encouraged like the loud teenagers that were there to be louder, right? So right. that you couldn't hear the film. <laughs> when Roger Ebert won't review it, even give it a bad review, that's uh, that's a really bad sign. Yeah, because he's he, he's gone out of his way to review films that are really terrible. Oh yeah, to dump on them, sure, yeah. Like it I, wasn't even worth that to him. Like I don't know, I don't know if anyone remembers Frozen Assets from a year after that. Oh, um, I don't think so. What's the plot? Oh, 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 no one remembers this film, man. I'm surprised because it's really, it, it's, it was a really terrible comedy idea about this, uh, banker who, who's like, you say like, oh, you, you got to manage this bank or you're, we're kicking you out of the firm. Except what they don't tell him is, and I swear to God, I'm not making up this plot. This is real. It's a sperm bank. And he and he intentionally misses the fact that it's a sperm bank, so he can go in there and make all these jokes about money uh, to people who are there to dump off sperm. Okay, was this a Shelley Long movie? I uh, yeah yeah I believe it was. There's I think few... I remember a poster or a commercial for that. Yeah, it it it's never come out on DVD. It's only been on <laughs> oh, <laughs> really. Yeah, well, it just came. Everyone said it was like the worst film of 1992. And it just right. it just evaporated, like and it's it's not one of those like kind of like you know like direct video things. It was in theaters. Ebert did okay. review it. He gave it a really horrible review, and then on like Bob Costa's show in like uh, November that <laughs> wow. year, he Good asked pull. like, "Oh, what's the worst film of the year?" Both him and Gene answered in unison, "Frozen Assets." Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I hate to say because it sounds so. Um, Hollywood uh, studio executive uh, ish, but I think this film lacks heart. Like it's, it's really oh, yeah. spirited and I hate all the characters. And I think about something like Beetlejuice, which definitely has funnier jokes, but isn't like a great construction in terms of plot. But you cared and, about the, the couple. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this lacks that. So and Beetlejuice is also gross and you know, it's got all that stuff going on. Um, but it's got a lot of charisma, of course, in, in Michael Keaton's performance. So it's just weird that they would mostly embrace that. And this is just, no, forget it. There's just no way. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 too wild with like crazy stuff for the characters to do rather than actually liking the characters. And that's why, like, you know, Demi Moore and Chevy Chase could have been a likable couple if they're if 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 it wasn't just like, you know, Demi Moore being freaked out and Chevy Chase, you know, raising his eyebrows and cracking jokes. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I don't scrutinize Chevy Chase performances, but most of the reviews that I've read for this um, and we'll talk about some of those right now in Pick of the Patch. They say that he's just like not, he's phoning it in. You know, he's not really giving his all and he's definitely not at uh, Caddyshack level, but I didn't sense that he was just really checked out. Well, no, no, I, and I think it's because, like, I think it, it might not have come through on the screen because he's struggling to, because <laughs> this is a role where he's meant to react, which he's, yes. he's good at reacting, but yeah. I don't think he's, 
but I think he's he's almost kind of like having like too much fun with it. Where I think like he should be more freaked out. He's just kind of given that kind of like, oh, isn't that a little bit odd that we're in a right? Yeah, rubber toys. You know? <laughs> like his his deadpan. That's why you hire him. Like when they see the sign that says no cursing, he's like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a Chevy Chase bit. Or uh, I like the bit when they're running away at one point in the film and they open the door and all these like the the room is just chock a block with uh, toy babies like baby dolls. Yeah, he's like, that oh, must be the nursery. Like that's what you yeah. <laughs> that's what you hire Chevy Chase for. They're, they're not bad bits, but yeah, they're 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 kind of like little throwaway throwaway bits that just kind of get lost in everything else going on. Right, we've got to get back to the pickle shooting train. Oh yes. <laughs> That's what's on display here. Well, it's not hard to find a negative review of this film, but in fact, it's hard to find reviews at all, at least ones that were written near its release. Uh, Like you said, Roger Ebert famously refused to write a review of the film. Um, And as I said previously, the film doesn't even have a Metacritic score. But I did find a New York Times review by Vincent Canby, written uh, in 1991. And he says that uh, Mr. Aykroyd's screenplay is an accumulation of loose narrative ends and lines that don't even cheer when they're thrown away. Uh, which I think fits. He also mentioned that there was few people in the cinema and there's virtually no laughter from beginning to end, though there may have been some silent smiles. Chris Hicks of the Deseret News said in 1991 that Aykroyd is like a child with too many toys and too much freedom and the resulting chaos rules the movie. And he also adds that Chase Candy and Moore appear much less than animate, uh, much less animated than usual and downright embarrassed in some scenes. Yeah, <laughs> they, they're pretty which, much right. <laughs> yeah, which I think uh, we do see uh, in Chevy Chase's performance. Uh, not everybody was 100% critical. Peter Rainier was writing for the LA Times in 1991, and he gave a review that I would characterize as honest but encouraging. And he said, if you're in the mood to be clobbered with stale jokes, it might seem fitfully amusing. Occasionally, the talents of the cast burn through the haze of misfires and remembered routines. Yeah. As I mentioned before, it was actually IFC that listed Nothing But Trouble as one of 10 90s comedies that really need sequels. And I actually found a BuzzFeed article about the film written about five or six years ago uh, that called it uh, it was called the 16 most traumatic things about nothing but trouble which i think uh yeah i think that's fitting oh yeah <laughs> you know what would be interesting if they what if they did like kind of like a devil's reject style sequel ah Where, yeah okay because then we, we 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 turn the tables on alvin and then alvin is gonna have to react to a world where he's where he's not as up on the binge and he's got to find other creepy and gross people to associate with Okay, I see. Uh, kind of uh, the hills have hot dogs kind of thing. Yeah, that, we got the title. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that this film would have benefited more from uh, going darker? Uh, like we mentioned that I don't think any of the people, we don't see anybody die. Like we it, we see a lot of bones. There's a lot of suggestion of murder. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, uh, Daniel Baldwin and his group, you know, they get, they get offed. But if we saw them sort of get knocked out one by one, and either Chevy Chase or Demi Moore becomes the final guy or girl in the situation. Like if it leaned into the horror element of the horror comedy, would it have been more successful? Uh, if if they could have found funny stuff to to, to do funny with ways it. to die, yeah, like like they, they could find like gory ways to die, but there would have to be like a good capper to it, or they'd have to be like an amusing method to their death. Like like the Bone Strippers is it's kind of a funny idea if they could find more funny ways to kill people along it but if they if they just flat out put gore in there i think it'd just be more baffling than anything (laughs) 
I was thinking like a like a cabin in the woods kind of thing, uh, sort of a humorous Joss Whedon sort of aspect to it, but yet it's uh, there's something else going on. Yeah, if it, if it put more of its tongue in its cheek rather than um, the hot dog, <laughs> yeah. then yeah. <laughs> sure, tongue or hot dog in cheek, absolutely. Uh, well, would you ultimately recommend this film? Do you think that this is a masterpiece or a disaster piece? Um, I think it's kind of more of a disaster piece. I think it's it, the only thing I'd say it's worth watching for is to watch the beginning and the end of Dan Aykroyd's oh. directing career. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. The single example of his directing career. I don't know. Um, I don't hate this film. Absolutely. Um, I would say that the best parts probably can be seen in YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know the, the phone stripper scene, um, a lot of the scenes are on YouTube. Um, maybe as a cautionary tale or like what not to do. Uh, but I think by the time 91 rolled around, like there's this whole kind of um, die yuppie scum kind of thing. Like the whole movie starts in, you know, Ray Charles is singing. We're on in yeah. the Upper West side and you get no idea of where it's going. And I know they did that on purpose, but it's got a real anti yuppie thing that I think was already kind of played out by 91. Of course, 92, yeah. the vanities came out and that was a big failure as well. So it's kind of a film out of its own time. Um, but I have trouble saying no, you know, avoid like the plague, but maybe don't eat during the hot dog scene. No, it's if, if you really want to see something like repulsive, <laughs> if, if you, if you love the gross and we, 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 to be honest, we kind of did love the gross back in the early nineties. Right. I mean, we, we had yes. Nickelodeon and we had, uh, we saw slasher films and we had Adam's family and all kinds of weird gross stuff going on. So if, right. if you want to get like, I guess kind of like a sour taste for the era. That's kind of <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we didn't have uh, the U- uh, the internet back then, so there's no two girls one cup. It was just uh, one old man and many many dogs. Yeah, if we if we wanted to throw up, we had to we had to go watch uh, Dan Aykroyd eat stadium pranks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I think that's it for us. Uh, Listeners, thanks for joining us. If you want to let us know how you felt about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft services. We're also on Twitter at craft disservice, no S. And we're on iTunes. You can search for craft disservices there and subscribe, rate and review us. That really helps us out a lot. We're also on Google Play and Stitcher and all those great places. Mark, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at uh, movieswithmark.com. They can find me at, um, I write for twincitiesgeek.com and movies with, uh, moviespoon.com. Um, I'm also on uh, twitch.tv slash moviesmark, which I do movie reviews on there. And uh, you can find my books on Amazon, like uh, The Best Worst Weird Movies of the 90s, which has nothing but trouble in it. And you can probably guess <laughs> where it falls in there. <laughs> yeah, I can. I, at least you wrote something about it. So yeah. you're one up on Ebert there. Uh, any other things that you're working on or books that you've got uh, in the pipe? Uh, yeah, I, I'm... I'm planning on finishing up uh, i did a book on the 90s film so i'm going to plan on doing a book on the um on the aughts so 2000 to 2009 um i like that you say aughts i've heard recently uh, somebody much younger than me say naughties so i don't know if that's (laughs) the thing now or if we still have a chance to keep that from becoming the thing i think it it was oddies and then it transformed into naughties oh man that's even worse oh (laughs) so they tried to fix it (laughs) yeah okay so on this show now and forever it'll be the aughts Yes. Well, uh, check out Mark's books online and follow him, uh, especially the horrors of anime. And that is it for us. The credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Mark saying, go suck a bug. Go suck a bug.